Welcome to the Earth to Humans podcast. I'm Gregory Haddock, and I'm joined here with Iona Cunningham-Urich. How you doing, Iona? I'm good. I'm good. London. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm in Loveland. Well, I'm very, very, very excited for a couple of reasons, and I get excited every episode, so that's no... That's no surprise to listeners at all, but um, one really cool thing, Iona and I have been working together on this for a number of a, a number of months, uh, and I say us, when I say us, I really mean Iona's been working on this for a couple of months, and a first-time producer for the Earth to Humans podcast, that's really cool, and the topic that, that you brought to us today is just so, 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 so cool. So tell us a little bit about the guests that you have. And without giving away too much of the story, what should listeners be listening for? Okay, so um, I basically got in touch with the first person that I'm talking to, who's Dr. Raquel Thomas-Caesar. When I went to this tiny country that very, very few people have heard about before called Guyana, um, as part of a kind of volunteering expedition, scientific expedition, and basically we went to this forest called Irakrama, which is a protected one of the protected areas in Guyana. And it's kind of unique in the way that it operates, and that is one of the things that we shall find out. But um, I've just always thought that it's a really, really interesting concept as a protected area, and it's not really something that we talk about that often. Um, so I think we'll just delve a bit more into that. And then the second person that I'm talking to is a scientist. Um, Dr. Jake Bicknell, who has actually done research on the effects of the activities that they do in the in this protected area. So they kind of they do a bit of forestry and it's just to see if forestry actually affects biodiversity in these areas or not. Yes, 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 yes. And yes, very, very, very cool topic. And I'm going to give just a little bit more about it. Um, So I'm sorry, I'm stepping on your toes now. Uh, So. For for listeners, uh, yes, Guyana is a country in north, uh, the northern part of South America. Uh, go look it up on a map. Sounds like it's a beautiful place and definitely geographically way more diverse than I would have thought it'd be. But the really cool part about this Iwakrama forest is is the meshing is like the the convergence convergence the convergence of all of these different you know capacities about protecting the forest, preserving it, using it, but using it responsibly, biodiversity, and um, ultimately how it affects local and indigenous communities and how they can get the most out of it. Am I right? Yeah, that's that's exactly it. And also it's, um, it's the other thing that I failed to mention is that Guyana is a tiny, po- the, the population is incredibly tiny. It's only about 750,000 people, but it's still doing quite a lot in terms of conservation and understanding how to protect forests on the long term kind of thing but yeah it just always surprises me it's such a small country but it's actually doing quite a lot so rad let's get into it (laughs) i start by talking to dr raquel thomas who is from guyana and who works for iwakrama which is the area of interest in this podcast episode today Hi, um, my name is Raquel Thomas. I'm a scientist. I'm a tropical forest ecologist, and I work with the Iwakrama International Center based in Guyana. And Iwakrama is one of five protected areas in Guyana. Cool. So um, I think it's important that we start with just explaining where Guyana is, because most people don't have never heard of it. Okay, well, first of all, it is in South America, and it's not Ghana and Africa, which people mix it up a bit. It's actually on the northern side of South America, and it's the only English-speaking country in South America. And it formerly was a British colony, and we, we actually got our independence in 1966. Yeah, so um, Ghana is a really interesting place with sort of multiple cultures, lots of different yeah. people, and just... Um, so, so maybe could you just talk very, very briefly about um, Guyana's history? Okay, well, you know, Guyana, we have um, many ethnicities. Of course, the original people came here probably about, we think, 12,000 years ago. That's the indigenous people. And then through history, um, you have other groups that arrived. Um, so you have the British, the Dutch, the, 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 the um, French in form of colonialists, and then 
they brought in other groups because sugarcane was um, the big industry then globally. Mm. And so the Portuguese first came and then the Chinese. No, sorry, I'm, I'm getting it wrong. The Africans were first brought in terms of work the sugar fields. And then after um, the, the emancipation, you had this, the Portuguese and the Chinese um, came to work the fields. And then after that, uh, the Indians came as um, also indentured laborers. So that's why we have this kind of melting pot of different groups here. Yeah, and it's got quite a lot of different sort of geographical um, types of sort of land types. So there's, you have obviously the coast and beaches, but you also have forest and mountains and savanna. Right. Is that yes, right? Yeah. We have, um, but they said the four main types. So you have the coastlands, and our, we do have beaches, but our beaches are more brown water and brown brown sands. And then on the on the Atlantic of itself, it's more like clay loam. And this yeah. is linked into the, the Amazon, the Amazon as well. And then we have the hilly region. We have the lowland region. We also have a large um, area of savanna. And uh, Rupununi savanna in particular is very spectacular and special. But 87% of, of, of Guyana is um, forested. So there's a huge and vast forest estate. Um, so it's, it really is an important country in terms of conservation when you're thinking about tropical rainforests. So I think that's really good. We've had a presentation to Guyana, um, very forested with some savannas and multiple ecosystems. So um, what is Guyana doing in order to help sort of preserve the environment? Well, uh, there are many ways that Guyana is working on, on, on preserving the environment. When we talk about environmental uh, preservation, and it's something that we do at Tewakrama. We talk about the concept of integrating sustainable use and conservation. But at a national level, uh, let's talk about firstly the protected area system. So we have five protected areas in Guyana. So on the northern, the most northern part, we have the shell beach, and that was mainly formed to protect the four marine turtles, endangered species, including the leatherback. Um, and coming down a bit more, we have the smallest protected area, but the oldest protected area in Guyana, and that's the Kite Shore National Park. And it really was to protect the sp spectacular waterfall, but also the that's a very um, high and elevated location. So the biodiversity there is completely different from what you would see from the other protected areas as well. And some of the, um, like the animals and so you'd find there are definitely different than what you're finding, for instance, Ewokrama. As you go to the center of the country, you have Ewokrama and that's considered lowland forest, even though we do have some mountainous area, mountainous areas. Then as you go further south, you get to the Kanako Mountains protected area. And that is mainly mountainous, but also has its vast forest estate. And then very south of Guyana is the Kanashen area. And that is, as I was saying, we have nine indigenous tribal, area, um, tribal nations. That area is owned by a community known as the YY people. And their whole forest estate that they own is 425,000 hectares. It's the largest protected wow. area in Guyana. And that's the newest protected area. So it, those are the five main areas. We are due to extend our protected area system by 2 million hectares um, due to a commitment made. Or remember the Paris agree, uh, Agreement that was in, yeah. in 2015, our president, um, President Granger, committed another 2 million hectares to go into the protected area system. And I would link into the IHE targets that each country should have at least 17% of their area covered on the protected areas. So you work for with Irakrama. Um, yes. So what is Irakrama? Where? How was it founded? Why? When? All those yes. questions. So Irakrama is a really very special place. And in 1989, our then president Hoyt, and I have to say this is preceding the big 1992 environmental summit in Rio. So Guyana really was on the forefront of looking at conservation when this area of a million acres of forest was dedicated to the global community through the Commonwealth at, in November of 1989 at the Commonwealth head of, head of states meeting in Malaysia. And this space was offered, not giving away, but an offer for space to do research and development as it relates to, to tropical rainforests. Because in those days, um, 
in the 80s, late 80s, there was a lot of concerns that tropical forests were being destroyed. You know, you look, think about Indonesia and some of the other countries, even Venezuela to some extent, um, and Brazil, you know, had large swaths of areas being um, compromised. So, so countries, I think, were trying to look for ways which they can help within the conservation effort. I'm very proud of Guyana to be stepped forward very early because you have to also remember it was only until after the 1992 summit that the conventions on biodiversity and land degradation and climate change, those only came about after that 92 um, summit. So Guyana was very much in the forefront. Um, it became, Iwakrama became this legal entity in 1996 because there was no legislation for protected areas in Guyana then. So we actually had to get a special protected area, uh, um, special protected legislation, sorry. And that was passed in 1996 by our new, the, the, another president, President Chedi Jagan. And I think it was a really important step in establishing the center uh, and that's when the, the the most of the work in terms of research and so on began. Yeah, so it's got quite of a getting to be long history now, or not long, but it's... it's yeah, it's 30 uh, years, actually, yeah. since that first offer was made. It's quite a number of years. And think about 1996 is now 23 years ago. Yeah, and it's also very forward thinking, right? To it was, it was, it is, it was, and I think also how we develop the model for um, governance was important. An important thing to mention, if you think about it, when that area was selected, remember it's an area that have indigenous people living around those spaces. In fact, there's one community within Iwakrama. How Iwakrama was announced at the time was not how you would announce in a protected area now. Now you have all the processes you have to look at free and prior informed consent and so on. And when that area was offered, the indigenous people in the area, and, and that's like Saraman, Fairview and so on, remember, you know, now have Sidney Alicock, who is now a minister in the government. And he was concerned, he was saying like, hold up guys, and his father, Fred Alicock, hey, hold up guys, what are y'all doing here, you know? So what happened after that offer was made and accepted internationally by the Commonwealth was a, was a really comprehensive system of consultations with the communities to start seeing how they could be more involved in the process because recognizing that this was their historical and ancestral land space. And what Iwakrama managed to do was gain the trust of the communities and incorporate the communities as part of the management system, their knowledge, their, them as managers, and so on. So that structure of governance, I think, became one of the best models to follow in terms of how you manage an area and having that people-first concept in terms of managing an area sustainably. It's so interesting to hear about how Iwakrama incorporates local communities into its management system, especially if you consider that this is something that has been completely overlooked all around the world in the past. So I do find it encouraging that Guyana acknowledges this and works towards it. In fact, as Raquel mentioned, the most recently established protected area in Guyana is actually indigenous owned. But one of the things that I find so exciting and incredibly interesting about Iwakrama is that it actually works as a scientific experiment to determine whether sustainable forestry is achievable on the long term or not. So this is what we talk about next. Yeah, so a very important part of how we manage the whole space, that million acres of forest, is how we have zoned the area. And we did a very strategic zone. It took about two years. That's between 1999 and 2001. And we created several scenarios. And these scenarios were created based on data collection, but also consultations with people, including government, University of Guyana, and a very important, of course, group where the, where the indigenous people from the area. So it's zoned into two areas. You have the wilderness preserve, which looks at several criteria, including spiritual and um, uh, spiritual aspects. Um, and then you have the other area, which is a sustainable use area where we can where we conduct our sustainable use activities. Now, the wilderness preserve acts as a, a space where you can have your you save your your resources and so on. But from a scientific point of view. It actually is a space where we can use as a control. So whatever you do within your sustainable use area, 
you can you can always look back at the the the, the, the wilderness preserve and see what's going on. So um, that's an important point. But what I want to also talk about when we're talking about sustainable management of natural resources, fundamentally comes down to people, how people manage people, and how people manage the resources. And the thing is, you can't talk about managing resources if you're not talking about people's livelihoods as well. And many protected areas have failed in the past because of not considering that. You've, for instance, some protected areas have excluded people. People were removed from these spaces. Then they had they went to the cities and started living in shanty towns and so on and craving to come back to their space. And and in some cases where people have lived with heart in harmony with environments for thousands of years or hundreds of years, they usually know how to manage those spaces. Well, we come in with our methods from the Western point of view, and we're the ones who might cause damage. So these are things that we really, really, um, really have to consider. And as we're talking about partnerships, is how do we um, blend traditional knowledge and science to give the or modern science to give because traditional knowledge is a form of science because it's really true trial and error that indigenous people and other people have come up with ways to do things. So having this traditional science merge with modern science, which we call Western science, how do you how do you use these two things to give you the best results and best techniques for management? And that's what works really well. And I think that's um, something that Ewokrama has always acknowledged and something that I think we do pretty well. But this whole conservation thing sounds really good, huh? But you know, if you don't have money, it's really just a conversation. So you could just talk about it. You could be talking, talking, but when you're managing a protected area, it's very challenging because you also have to look at where you're gonna get money from. And that's one of the reasons Ewokrama does businesses. So we do have three businesses, timber, tourism, a sustainable forestry business, tourism, ecotourism, and we do training as a business as well. Um, so also, we also get some funds from the government. We also do merchandising. So like I would like t-shirts and other things that you sell. And then um, another way that we have to work really hard in raising money for the organization is through um, writing proposals and projects. So we do a lot of projects. We've worked with every single donor under the sun. And uh, another aspect, too, is working with business entities, so having corporate sponsorship. In terms of raising funds, you can't just, you can't just look at one way, because, one, like, for instance, sustainable forestry wouldn't support the whole Ewokrama. Tourism yeah. wouldn't do it alone. You have to bring everything together. I wanted to touch a bit on the forestry, because people freak out sometimes. Oh, you're cutting trees. No, you can't cut trees in a protected area. No. First of all, I want to assure people that Guyana itself has very good guidelines for forestry. And um, Ewokrama, we have we work with the government guidelines, but we even take it up a notch. We work even at a higher standard. We are also FSC certified, so we were we have a FSC certified operation. Uh, we only take about six trees per hectare. Um, when the more allowable cut is about 10, 10 to 11 trees per hectare. And trees are renewable, so they grow back. And we use a very, very strong system. We do re reduced impact logging system. So it's very systematic and very organized. We have to work with maps. We first do inventories. You have to know what you have, how to get there, how you place your trails for least damage and so on. So it's very strategically organized. And when we are doing our logging area that we've designated, which we call the net operable area, it's only 29% of the Ewokrama forest. So 71% will never ever be touched. And we only use a very small proportion of that every year. I think around 1800 hectares. And we use a 60 year cycle. So as we finish in one area, we move to another area and we won't even come back to that area until 60 something years after. And trees do grow back. So if you manage it in a good way, you actually can really, really have a very good system that works for everybody, including the forest. Something that you once said to me that I'll always remember is um, conservation isn't preservation. And yes. I've always thought that that's a really good way to think about it. Yeah. It is. Because we we actually encompass sustainable use in the whole concept of conservation. When you preserve is that you set aside and don't touch. That's completely different. 
from using but conserving and leaving. Um, and the old protected areas, and when the world started doing protected areas, what they did think was just like, okay, we're going to put this aside. We're not going to allow anybody to go and don't touch and so on. And, and quite often people were removed from these systems. And then, you know, you had a lot of illegality. Think about the wild meat and so on in Africa and people just abusing resources. I think if, 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 if you have an indigenous community, Syria and Africa, and they're taken away from the space that they have lived in for a hundred years, what are hundreds of years, what are they going to do? They're not going to survive in the city because they're a culture that, that knows about the forest. So there's a term called conservation refugees. They become conservation refugees. So that's what I love about Eokrama is that we incorporate the people, they use the forest and they're still allowed to come in and use the resources yeah. in Eokrama as long as for subsistence use. Yeah. Only for subsistence use, of course, right? Of course, Fairview, the only village within Ewokrama, we partner with them for the forestry business because part of the logging is done on their land and they benefit from it financially as yeah. well, right? So we have a special agreement with them. But um, that whole concept, they, so they can come in and hunt and fish and gather and so that's no problem because we know they've been using that space for hundreds of years. Why can't we? We cannot stop them. Yeah, and they haven't damaged the place because it's for their livelihoods. And it's not—they're not selling it on, or no, um, no. It's 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 to be able to survive, not to make profit out of it necessarily. Absolutely, and absolutely. That's, that's the point. Yeah, that's the point. The big line that sticks out with me from Raquel is, "Conservation is not preservation." And I think that's a huge distinction. And it's not one that I think most people conscientiously think about, myself included. What can, what do you make of that line? Or what do you, because it seems like it also kind of stuck with you a little bit. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Well, the thing is, is when, I mean, when I in the past thought about conservation before ever going to Iraqrama or thinking about these issues, it was just, Oh, yes, a protected area, you just kind of shut it off and then no one goes in there or you only go in there for, you know, a walk or something. And that's about it. But Iwakurama is totally different in the sense that it's really trying to use the forest to conserve it rather than just leave it completely alone and preserve it. And, and that's definitely not something that we take into consideration enough. It's how to use these resources, but in a in a sustainable manner. And yeah, it is one of the things that really stuck with me, but one of the other things that really sticks with me in relation to Iwakurama is the, the people concept. So conservation is done by people and for people. I can't remember the exact words that Raquel uses, but at the end of the day, that's the reason why we're doing it is so that people can survive. It, it it really isn't something you think about, is it? No, no, not at all. Um, and I think when I think of conservation or preservation, to me, they're like so interchangeable that I really think about it as maybe some some level of management, but not about resource extraction in a way that benefits in local and indigenous communities. And I think that that's just such an important distinction about the experiment, really, that Iwakrama is. Yeah, but that's it. But that's that's also one of the ways that our mindsets have to change, isn't it? It's we won't be able to preserve things forever. And if with growing populations, it's going to be trying to work out how to, as I said, use them rather than just leave them as they are. We have if not, there's not going to be enough land in the future that we can actually extract these resources from. God, that's an important distinction. That's the takeaway. There's all this area yeah. that we, we're going to be using stuff anyway. We might as well find a way to do it. We, not, not might as well. We need to find a way to, to do it responsibly. Yeah. I love but it. But it's not, it, it really does depend on the geographical context as well, because even though this is something that works very, very well in South America, it doesn't necessarily work as well in Southeast Asia or in Africa, which is something that I do discuss with Jake in the next section of this podcast. But it's how to change these mentalities and how, how to expand these forestry um, programs elsewhere in the world. And that's kind of the point of Iroquois as well. It's to understand if it works in the first place, because if it doesn't work, then what's the point? But it seems that they are getting some revenue from it. So hopefully it is something that 
will be used elsewhere in the future. My next guest is Dr Jake Bicknell, a conservation scientist from here in the UK who has done a lot of work in Iwakurama and in other tropical forests around the world. I was interested to learn more about the effects of sustainable forestry techniques on local biodiversity and local ecosystems. And since this is something that Jake works on, I thought that he would be the perfect person to ask. I'm Dr Jake Bicknell. I'm a lecturer in conservation biology at uh, the Durrell Institute of Conservation and Ecology which we shortened to DICE, uh, at the University of Kent. So how did you first get involved in Guyana and Irakrama? So nearly 20 years ago now, um, during my undergraduate degree, I'd had a year in professional practice. And I wanted to go and work in a tropical forest and volunteer my time for up to a year. And so I went to Irakrama and, and worked there for a year, lived in Georgetown between Georgetown um and the Ilgrama Forest, and the North Rupununi, which the savannah is just south of Ilgrama. And I, I ran a project that they had working on um, sustainable utilisation of aquarium fishes. So not so much on um, sort of forestry at that stage, but um, so I spent a year and got involved in all sorts of things at Ilgrama, but I was running this aquarium fish project with the local communities. Cool. So then you went on to do your PhD mm-hmm. using data that you gathered in Urukrama. So... Yeah. So before that, I also did my master's um, with data from Urukrama. So during my master's a few years later, I uh, decided to, to return to Guyana. And at that point, Urukrama had just started their forestry operation. And I was interested in the impacts of of the forestry operation, as were Iwil Kramer, and I'd, I'd kept up my links with Iwil Kramer in, in the years that passed between when I was there and, and doing my master's. And so I um, proposed a project to do um, large mammal surveys and large bird surveys, comparing the Iwil Kramer's newly logged area, where they use this technique called reduced impact logging, uh, with sort of primary forest areas that hadn't been touched. So my master's project involved sort of three months in the field conducting those um, surveys uh, and then I published the results of that uh, about a year later. And then um, a few years down the line again, um, I decided to expand that project to to do my PhD on. And so that involved lots of years of field work and expanding the the research questions to more species and using a different... um, set of of survey techniques as well. So what would you say are your first results then? What does the data look like? So I think that the primary results of all of my research on reduced impact logging is that in essence the impacts of this technique, this this approach to forestry, are minimal. Um, In some cases unnoticeable on biodiversity and that and that's an amazing result because um, not only is that forestry operation having very little impact on biodiversity but it's also financially viable and that really goes a long way to answering Iwil Kramer's sort of mission which is finding ways to use forests without destroying them. Um, but what about if we go into sort of more specific taxa, mm-hmm. is there any way, so maybe you'd expect a larger mammal to be more affected or not? Or Yeah, so we find um, that there's an important question of time as well. So it, essentially that a, a forest that has um, been logged using reduced impact logging technique will obviously see impacts immediately around the time of the logging, Uh, and immediately after. So um, my first study showed that um, sort of very high forest specialists like black spider monkeys um, are not particularly keen on on the logged area. Now that that may be due to two reasons. One, they just may be sort of inherently disturbance sensitive in terms of like they are, you know, wary of people and wary of machinery and wary of change. But the other reason may be that some of the large trees that are taken out are those that are sort of um, rich in fruits or maybe fruiting at that time or something like that. 
So we do find that um, there are a few sort of forest specialists that um, do probably go elsewhere during the logging operation and maybe at least, maybe soon afterwards. Um, but our more longer term data sets show that indeed those species are coming back within months or maybe a few years. Yeah, so more an effect on just their location at that time rather than exactly. their actual abundance. Yeah, there's no reason to believe that reduced impact logging in the all-ground forest actually reduces the carrying capacity of spider monkeys uh, or indeed any other species. That I mean, this is something that, that is a bit more of a nuance and, and requires sort of much bigger longer-term data sets, although this was a, a large and long-term data set, to actually quantify whether... Um, species have just moved elsewhere or actually reduced in numbers is a much more complex question. Yeah, totally. Um, and what if we think about more sort of freshwater organisms? Is there any um, indications of the potential impacts that mm. reduced impact logging might have on these systems? Sure. So I didn't study this um, and we haven't studied this within Ewell Grammar. However, there was a study done, I think, in Brazil uh, which looked at fish populations. There's been a few now that looked at fish populations um, in the kind of small rivers and creeks that you get um, running through these forestry areas, and indeed came to the same conclusion. There was no or very little impact or reduced impact logging on the sort of freshwater biodiversity. Um, one reason for this may be that. Um, so under reduced impact logging, there is a strict um, distance at which you can disturb at all um, the the river. And so it depends on what, exactly what you're doing, but there might be that there's no logging 20 metres from, from, from any watercourse at all. So if we think on a more worldwide, worldwide scale, yeah. how... How prominent is this sort of sustainable or reduced impact logging outside of Guyana and other places? So to determine the amount of reduced impact logging used, um, I think is fairly difficult. But we can say that, um, I can't remember, I think it's between 10 and 15% of exported tropical hardwoods are FSE certified. So we can we can sort of guess as a minimum that's that's the kind of area that's using these best practice forestry techniques. Now, for example, in Guyana, um, reduced impact logging is actually part of the legal system. But there's only one FSE certified concession, um, and that that goes back to what I was saying earlier: is that certification is a lot more than just using reduced impact logging. Um, and of course, in reduced impact logging can be implemented. Um, you know that there is a, a spectrum involved to a degree. It can be, you know, really good best reduced impact logging and less good reduced impact logging. Although the less good stuff is still going to be better than what we call conventional logging. Yeah, but I guess that's also from a financial um, perspective. That's the way that it seems to be able to generate as much income as <clears throat> quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. But what if we look at the income from reduced impact logging, for instance, in Iwakrama, is that on the long term, is that going to be actually beneficial or is it only a short term hmm. sort of idea? Well, it's almost the other way around, actually, um, because when you do reduced impact logging, your initial costs are higher because you have to do all these surveys um, to be able to plan, like I was saying, play, plan the roads and so on and so forth. And also to get certification, there's quite a lot of time and money invested in doing so because you have to report to this certification body so the initial outset um, and, and and equipment is different as well so the, the initial sort of um, business setup is actually higher um, but then the the value of those logs uh, is higher than conventional logging as well so are we seeing an increase in the use of reduced impact logging or practices around the world then now yeah we're seeing an increase um it's not a steep increase yeah. um there's an interesting nuance is that south america tends to have lower densities per area of forest of commercially viable trees um whereas in southeast asia you know there might be 20 or 30 
commercially viable trees per hectare of forest, and that's 100 metres by 100 metres, so not very big, you know, mm. smaller than a football pitch. Um, so if you take out 20 or 30 trees in a small area, uh, plus all the sort of roads getting in there to, to, to drag them out and the chainsaw and then the, the impact of actually the tree falling on other trees around it, mm. you can imagine that that forest gets quite trashed. So even if you're using reduced impact logging techniques um, in Southeast Asia, that forest looks a lot more degraded mm. than if you compare that with um, South America, where you might have between five and ten trees per hectare mm. that have a commercial value using the same techniques but at lower densities or lower intensities that forest tends to sort of look a lot nicer at the end of it so you have this question of not just what techniques to use but also the intensity at which mm. to do it and then african forests are sort of somewhere in between um but yeah in 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 Iwakrama, there might be um say 10 trees per hectare that are commercially viable but Iwakrama uses the approach of we're only going to take five yeah and because uh, that, that's because Iwakrama's mission is to test these things but what what as i said before what's encouraging is that operation is still commercially viable but they sell their timber for for high price that's really interesting um so you mentioned to me earlier when i first got here that you also work on sort of mining and hunting i have no idea about this so mm. if you could please expand so what's really interesting is that there's a body of literature over the last few years that um when we look at tropical forests and biodiversity within them hunting is probably the number one problem for tropical forest biodiversity in terms of it has the highest impacts it reduces um abundances of some species or you know target species um, more than logging and more than say mining or whatever it might be um, so we recently did a study that looked at when you lose when you ha when you still have a forest but you lose the biodiversity within it what happens to that forest and what we show is that the regeneration capacity of that forest reduces a lot and therefore the forest is changing now what's interesting is that the target species for hunters tend to be bigger animals with more meat on them so we're looking at large mammals deer um, monkeys and large birds now the problem with losing those sorts of species is that they are the only species that disturb dis disperse trees with large seeds because they're the large animals mm. now trees with large seeds rely on animals to disperse their seeds and without that seed dispersal service, uh, those trees actually um, become less abundant in a, in a forest because they can't get further away from the parent tree where we have this sort of interaction with the parent tree and competition and so on. So they rely on that um, seed dispersal service. And when you lose those animals, as I said, you lose the regeneration of those species. And what's really interesting in the current um, political climate is that... Um, the large seeded trees are also the ones that grow into the biggest trees with the most carbon. And obviously carbon locked up in trees is one of the biggest fights we have against climate change. So we have this interaction where previously we might have thought that a forest, regardless of its biodiversity, might be doing a really good thing for climate change. And indeed it is. But when you start to lose large animals, you also get a lot less carbon in those forests you have more sort of smaller trees you know, sort of denser forests but less carbon overall stored in it so the result of that is is that um, policymakers need to be looking at not just the forests themselves to conserve them but also what's in them so this brings us back to the hunting problem well if people are hunting for their livelihood local communities to feed their families then that's one thing but when it becomes a commercial thing commercial problem um where people are actually you know going into areas with guns uh and then selling that on the market in the capital of that city or whatever um then that that's when it becomes a big problem and that's so that's a, a fight that we have to fight at the moment yeah totally um quite a big problem and if we move on to so the mining practices yeah. so again so for instance guyana a lot of guyan 
Yeah, a lot of Guyana's revenue comes yeah. from um, mining or yeah. gold mining. Yeah. So could you potentially comment a bit more on that as well? Yeah, so just north of Iwakrama, there is legal mining. Um, within Iwakrama, there's no legal mining. People have tried, but not lasted very long, and it's not been extensive. Mm. Um, so within Iwakrama, there's n- no mining, um, and that's because it you know, totally has to clear areas of forest. Uh, but as you, as you mentioned, you know, a lot of Guyana's GDP uh, and tax revenue comes from the gold mining sector and indeed other um, materials, including diamonds and bauxite mm. and so on. Um, so mining is, is, a, is a big part of the economy, uh, employs a lot of people um, and is, broadly speaking, legal throughout the rest of the country where there's not protected area um, or it's allocated for yeah. something else. So... Um, and what this means for the habitats is that you have these large scars. Um, and so the in, in Guyana, the operations tend to follow um, small creeks and things. So this is what we call alluvial gold mining, where they basically clear an area. Um, and then basically they wash the mud out with um, large pumps uh, with water um, and potentially use mercury as well to extract the gold. So what this means is that you've got these sort of not often very large but very frequent clearings um, which become just, they look like, you know, the moon. They're just Mm. mud and sand everywhere. Um, Which, yeah, and, and, and so basically understanding those impacts on biodiversity and also the regeneration of those areas and, and what role... Um, what role sort of biodiversity may play in helping those areas to regenerate, um, going back to our sort of seed dispersal mm-hmm. question. Um, and also what sort of ages of mines, when do they start to regenerate on their own? When do they maybe need assistance and, and to be, you know, actually manually planted? Uh, and what with? Mm. Those are all questions that we're starting to embark on now. Is, is this going ahead? Are people starting to sort of help these areas regenerate? Yeah, there's been a, there's been a few experiments done by the authorities in Guyana, but they've just been very small areas where they have actually tested planting some trees. Um, but the mining companies themselves, the majority of mining companies in Guyana are just individuals or mm-hmm. you know, small organisations, you know, small companies. Um, so the mining companies themselves won't replant an area. There's one or two large scale mines, um, and so they will voluntarily voluntarily have a plan to replant mm. the area when it's done but if you imagine um that mine might be open for many many years before they do that i guess the incentive for keeping for going along with the mines is that it's a massive source of revenue yeah i mean as you said at the beginning of today it's one of the second poorest countries mm. um in south america and um now things are changing obviously because uh, whilst the gold mining sector is not going to go away overnight, <clears throat> Guyana sets to um, increase its GDP from offshore oil mm. massively. It's the largest oil find in the world for the last 30 years. So um, we expect to see fast change in, in Guyana. Um, and the current government um, plan something called their green state economy, which means that they plan to sort of use the money from offshore oil to actually fund forest conservation, uh, which might see a reduction in the gold mining sector. However, gold mining is kind of embedded in, in people's lifestyles. Yeah. And, and so, it's, as I say, it's not going to go away. Do you think the new petrol oil gas find is going to... So, for instance, the idea of building roads along down to Brazil, mm-hmm. do you think all of this is going to have massive impacts on the forests and the biodiversity there is. I mean, I know you say that they want to promote it, but mm-hmm. it will, could there also potentially be a side where, I mean, it's all speculation, of course, mm-hmm. majorly right now, but a side where there are going to be some detrimental effects? Yeah, I mean, basically, if you look globally, we have a road, you eventually get deforestation. Um, now there is a, as you know, a, a rough track road between Guyana and Brazil, uh, but if that turns into a proper paved road with proper bridges and so on and so forth, um, chances are 
that anywhere that that road passes that's not a protected area like Hillcrammer, um, I think we'll see people settling there and where there's settlements there's tends to be farming and deforestation associated with it so um yeah Guyana has some interesting times ahead and some difficult questions to answer now one thing that Guyana does have in its favor is the future of foresight based on hindsight so you look at you know where you've built a road in neighboring Brazil or wherever else um if the political will is there then we know how to stop mm. we know how to prevent vast deforestation um, but the political will would need to be there but also also need to think about you know the local communities in those areas you know they need income and the oil sector is not going to employ everyone that's really interesting so i think just to finish off what do you think the future is for reduced impact logging but on a global scale um well i think we will continue to see increases in its use at least in the sort of next few decades after that um i might hope that we're using alternatives to timber and and you know really being able to protect our forests for what they are um however you know what are the clear alternatives to timber that aren't polluting and aren't mm. plastics and, and so on and so forth. I don't know at this stage. Um, so for the time being, um, reducing impact logging will, in, will continue to be used and, and, and more so. Um, and I think it's a really important part of our conservation of tropical forests toolkit because as is Ewell Kramer's mission is to show the world how to use forests without actually you know completely destroying them so juice impact logging although it's logging and although it involves forest disturbance it's very much better than the status quo yeah exactly and what's the future for your research now future for my research i think um i've been doing some work on oil palm um and i think that the agricultural sector is, um, you know, one of the biggest drivers of, of tropical forests. And so finding ways to, let's just call it reduced impact oil mm. palm or reduced impact rice or reduced impact coconuts, those sorts of things. Um, so my main um, focus in, in future years is is on about, it is, it's going to be about disturbances to tropical forests and how can we make those things less so? Um, how can we still feed the world uh, without losing mm. all of our forests and all of our biodiversity? And whether it's tropical forests or whether it's, you know, the woodland in Canterbury or wherever okay. it might be. Um, it's about reconciling this massive increase that we're seeing in the human population and their requirements with actually being able to maintain biodiversity. And increasingly, I'm positive because... We are now seeing that biodiversity are actually not just our friends, but we actually need biodiversity to exist. Um, and that's kind of illustrated by the fact that forests um, that harbour carbon and animals harbour more carbon. Yeah, well, I think that's a, quite a positive note to end on. Um, thank you very much. And, um, that's it. It sounds to me like if there's one term, one piece of vocabulary that listeners come away with in the Ewokrama experiment, it's reduced impact logging. Now, that's not me being smart. That's really, Iona, that's you telling me that that is the thing to take away from this. And, and it's incredible, right? Like the, the, the way that you can still use the forest, but to do it in a way where you don't destroy the biodiversity, you, you don't take away so much of it that there's there's no chance of it bouncing back or maintaining any kind of consistency yeah exactly so so you only remove very very few trees from this overall forest and also one thing about Iwakrama is that it goes one step further and it leaves half the forest as a kind of model or half of it is completely left alone so that in the future it'll be possible to track 
different changes between the, the used forest and the non-used forest. So reduced impact logging does seem to be really efficient. It doesn't seem to have an impact on biodiversity or at least not that has been noticed yet. But I think one of the main things that is a bit more worrying are the mining and hunting aspects that, that Jake picked up on. So hunting, just because you remove a large mammal, it's not going to be able to you know, move seeds around, large seeds of large trees. How do you regenerate a forest? And in the same way for mining, I don't think much research has been done on that at all. So how do you restore these mining, so it's large open mines, how do you restore these, these areas so that the forest does become a bit more like it was before, even if it's, it will be a secondary forest at first rather than a massive primary forest, but uh, it is, these are important questions that Guyana is going to be facing in the future, especially with um, this massive oil field finds that they found a couple of years ago. So with this one road that goes up all the way along Iwakrama, it's kind of the only way that they have to commercialise with Brazil. So what's going to happen along that road if Guyana is going to become some kind of centre for oil and Brazil is obviously going to be wanting to come up a bit more regularly? What's going to happen to that road down the middle? What's going to happen where the forest isn't protected? And these are questions that Guyana is going to have to think really, really deeply about in order to make sure that they keep on this. They, they start off so well putting these protected areas aside, but you really, really hope that they're not going to, that they're going to stay on that level and continue on that, um, oh, what's the word, trajectory. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the experiment is far from over. But from all of the tell points that we hear in these interviews, you have that control part of the forest. You're looking at, you know, what, what, how can you do this in a sustainable way? I mean, there's, there's a lot of uh, variables that could really change the course of, of what's going on. But it sounds like this is still one of the foremost experiments in how to do this in a way that's good for planet, animals, and people and it'll be very 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 interesting to watch what happens to Iwakrama and Guyana as a whole in the years to come and what it means for extracting this as an example for other forests yeah it goes out so much further than Guyana really it's it's really a worldwide way to look at tropical forests well, it's great work. Thank you so much for bringing it to the Earth to Humans audience. I have loved this. Iona Cunningham, Yurik, thank you so much for this episode of Earth to Humans. <laughs>